Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Look, I promise not to spend the entire show talking about Afghanistan or what the Biden administration is doing and not doing. Um, but we had to start off with this. And uh, I went back and forth about whether I was going to do this. But it is so powerful. In case you have not yet heard it, uh, there's a conservative member of parliament named uh, Tom Tugendhat. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he delivered an eight-minute speech on the floor of the House of Commons, which has been described as one of the most electrifying moments um, that this one observer said that he'd ever seen in the British House of Commons. And he is a former, obviously, a, a veteran of the war and is absolutely unsparing in his critique of what is going on. Uh, and... I wanted to share this with you. I, I, this is worth taking time to spend eight minutes to listen to this uh, conservative British MP and veteran. Like many veterans, this last week has been one that has seen me struggle through anger and grief and rage. The feeling abandonment of not just a country, but the sacrifice that my friends made. I've been to funerals from Poole to Dunblane. I've watched good men go into the earth, taking with them a part of me and a part of all of us. And this week has torn open some of those wounds, left them raw, left us all hurting. And I know it's not just soldiers, I know aid workers and diplomats who feel the same. I know journalists who've been the witnesses to our country in its heroic effort to save people from the most horrific fates. I know that we've all been struggling. And if this recall has done one thing, let me tell you now, Mr. Speaker, it's achieved one thing already. I've spoken to the Health Secretary, who's already made a commitment to do more for veterans' mental health. Yeah. This isn't just about us. The mission in Afghanistan wasn't a British mission, it was a NATO mission. It was a recognition that globalisation has changed us all. The phone calls that I am still receiving, the text messages that I've been answering as I've been waiting, putting people in touch, with our people in Afghanistan reminds us that we are connected. We are connected still today. And Afghanistan is not a far country about which we know little. It is part of the main. That connection links us also to our European partners, to our European neighbours, and to our international friends. <laughs> And so it is with great sadness that I now criticise one of them. Because I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognised by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with to claim that they ran. It's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Yeah. 
what we've done in these last few days, is we've demonstrated that it's not armies that win wars. Armies can get tactical victories and operational victories that can hold a line. They can just about make room for peace, make room for people like us to talk, to compromise, to listen. It's nations that make war. Nations endure, nations mobilize and muster, nations determine and have patience. And here we've demonstrated, sadly, that we, the West, the United Kingdom, does not. Now this is a harsh lesson for all of us. And if we're not careful, it could be a very, very difficult lesson for our allies, but it doesn't need to be. We can set out a vision, clearly articulated, for reinvigorating our European NATO partners to make sure that we are not dependent on a single ally, on the decision of a single leader, but that we can work together with Japan and Australia, with France and Germany, with partners large and small, and make sure that we hold the line together. Because we know that patience wins. We know it because we have achieved it. We know it because we have delivered it. The Cold War was won with patience. Cyprus is at peace with patience. South Korea, with more than 10 times the number of troops that America had in Afghanistan, is prosperous through patience. So let's stop talking about forever wars. Let's recognize that forever peace is bought, not cheaply, but hard, through determination and the will to endure. And that the tragedy of Afghanistan is that we're swapping that patient achievement for a second fire and a second war. Now we need to turn our attention to those who are in desperate need, supporting the UNHCR, the World Food Programme, and so many other organisations who can do so much for people in the region. Yes, supporting refugees, of course I support refugees, though I'm not going to get into the political auction of numbers. We just need to get people out. So I leave with one image. In the year that I was privileged to be the advisor to the governor of Helmand, we opened girls' schools. And the joy it gave parents to see their little girls going to school was extraordinary, and I didn't understand it until I took my own daughter to school about a year ago. And there was a lot of crying when she first went in, but I got over it, and <laughs> it went okay. And I would love to see that continue. But there is a second image I must leave you with, and it is a harder one. But I'm afraid it is one that I think we must all remember. Leave away. Don't think only for a minute. It's for a minute. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about that second image. <laughs> I'm very grateful to my friend who was watching the clock more than me. The second image is one 
that the forever war that has just reignited could lead to. It is the image of a man whose name I never knew, carrying a child who had died hours earlier, carrying this child into our firebase and begging for help. Now, there was nothing we could do. It was over. Because, Mr. Speaker, this is what defeat looks like. It's when you no longer have the choice as to how to help. This doesn't need to be defeat. But at the moment, it damn well feels like it. Ed David. That's, that is a tough act to follow. So uh, I, I guess we're going to throw you under the bus. Uh, Sarah Longwell, my colleague uh, at, the, at the Bulwark, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So these are difficult times for those of us uh, that uh, touted, embraced, enthusiastically supported Joe Biden because uh, we want him to do better. And uh, and it's it's tough. I mean, I, you know, for people who write to us, say, oh, you guys are going back to your conservative Republican roots. Um, no, this is this is this is a lot more difficult. This is this is a, a moment of testing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, um, I was not just somebody who settled for Joe Biden. I, I, I got to a place where I was quite enthusiastic that we had the option uh, of Joe Biden as people who were kind of disaffected Republicans like us. Uh, who are so aware of what's happening to the Republican Party, who are so concerned about the direction it's going, where we're, I think we think it is actively dangerous. We are not, like, we want Joe Biden to succeed. Like, we are. We, I, we couldn't want this it anymore. This is the point. This is we the couldn't point. want it anymore. And so, and it's not that we're like, you know, dyed in the wool neocons, and that's why, you know, we're so mad about this. It's It's something bigger than that. It's that what we wanted and the reason that I think, you know, we didn't want the Bernie Sanders or the Elizabeth Warren, we wanted um, somebody who could put a steady hand on a wheel where we thought things were out of control. And and that that competence was something we were really looking for. And so when you see what's happening in Afghanistan, look, we're going to stipulate all the things, right, gestures broadly. We're going to stipulate that, uh, that, that Donald Trump put Joe Biden in an extraordinarily difficult situation. Um, and uh, and that, that 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 and even stipulate that we probably should leave. The question is, and it's it's this is, you know, I guess conventional wisdom at this point is is how did we do it? And I don't think that you can look at this as just an objective observer who believes that, you know, America should be capable of doing great things and think that this is a good way to go. Uh, right. right. This is not. So let me just play a little bit of the soundbite of uh, the president sitting down with George Stephanopoulos. I was kind of hoping that he would use this as a reset moment, a moment of, um, you know, a little bit of humility or more determination uh, to get it right now. Um, but let's play a, a, little, a little bit of, of an excerpt of the back and forth with George Stephanopoulos and Joe Biden from last night. When you look at what's happened over the last week, was it a failure of intelligence, planning, execution, or judgment? Look, I don't think it was a failure. Look, it was a simple choice, George. When the, when the Taliban, uh, let me back and put it another way. When you had the government of Afghanistan, the leader of that government, getting in a plane and taking off and going to another country, when you saw the significant collapse 
of the of the uh, Afghan troops we had trained, up to 300,000 of them, just leaving their equipment and, and, and taking off. That was, you know, I'm not, this is, is that, that's what happened. That's simply what happened. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days oh, ago. What did you think when what? you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. So you don't think this could have been handled? This actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight no, and look no. at the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that uh. happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. There's so much wrong there, Sarah. There's just so much wrong there. Um, Yeah, right. I mean, here's the biggest problem with it, I think, is just that we we know that Joe Biden didn't feel that way uh, not that long ago, right? Like, like there's just, there's too many clips of him saying, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That's exactly right. And so the idea that it was priced in, that it had to be this way, um, both, you know, begs disbelief, but, but it's not, uh, it's not, it's not just that. It's also the temperament of Joe Biden that I find sort of disappointing here. Like what you want this is Trump's move was like it was always someone else's fault. He was never responsible. Even if Joe Biden was saying this is a tragic situation, because look, there's a whole bunch of things that probably were unavoidable um, that that definitely were unavoidable about us leaving. But even if he was just saying like, I accept responsibility. This this wasn't handled well. We're going to do better. We're going to do you know something that both tells our international allies that we realize this is not going well uh, and we're going to do whatever we can to fix it, that we're going to do our best. Like it's just when you yearn for America to be in a better place and our politicians to take responsibility and lead, I just feel like that's not what this looks like. It's not what that is. No, it's not what it looks like. And and here's the here's part of the problem um, is that this is his handling of of Afghanistan is not a one off. This is something that that he's thought about for decades. This is something uh, that he feels very, very strongly about. Um, And it really does reflect the decisions that he made um, with with clear forethought. I mean, he look, this is not something that was sort of like he was distracted and said, hey, let's let's do this. And, you know, Peter Weiner has this really devastating piece in The Atlantic where he reminds us of something that I think that probably we had averted our eyes from, that uh, he has a long, Joe Biden has a long, 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 long history of getting things wrong on foreign policy. And in fact, more specifically, a long history of kind of, and this is what's so strange to me, is kind of callousness um, about moral obligations. And I say it, it, it's funny because the one thing that really I thought was one of the defining features of Joe Biden's uh, president was going to be uh, one of the defining features was his empathy, was the fact that he would never allow, um, you know, a humanitarian disaster to take place on his watch. But uh, Weiner goes back and looks at the history. And, you know, back in 1975, uh, after the fall of, of uh, Vietnam, Joe Biden said, I'm getting sick and tired of hearing about morality, our moral obligation. There's a point where you're incapable of meeting moral obligations that exist worldwide. Um, he quotes uh, George Packer's biography of Richard Holbrook, uh, who was the you know envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And in, in that book, 
Uh, Packer said that uh, Biden had argued the United States does not have an obligation to the Afghans who trusted the United States. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. And Biden also reportedly pushed back on the argument that America had a moral obligation to women in Afghanistan. So this is this is kind of an ouch moment. I'm 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 a, I'm afraid. And I, I'm really hoping, because I think the success of his presidency, as you mentioned, Sarah, is so important, that his friends will say, you know, Mr. Biden, we know that you've been wanting to get out of this war, but um, this is this is badly off brand for you. It's it, it raises questions about your judgment, about your competence and about this fundamental, you know, empathy. So let me ask you this, sir, because I know you've been doing focus groups. Big question. So does this actually matter? I mean, there are people who will argue, and we know some of the people who will argue that nobody cares about foreign policy, that nothing ever matters. What is your sense? How badly will this hurt Joe Biden? You know, I can't answer that for sure. Um, but I do think that you know, what, what, when you think about what impacts people's perceptions of presidents, it tends to be macro. Uh, and, you know, they're not going to get into the weeds on lots of decision things and all of the things that consume us as close political watchers do not consume the average voter. But when they have something in their heads that's already a concern. So when you do these focus groups with voters, including people, I call them flippers, um, but people who voted for Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020, uh, you know, one of the things that you hear that was always a concern for them is, is and and I, I actually, you know, I, I would always sort of dismiss this, uh, or it, for me, it was not an issue, uh, but was this question of, you know, is he up to it? Uh, does he, is, is he mentally competent? I mean, look, that, that sort of dementia thing really did break through. Uh, mm. And the other mm. thing I think that really broke through is this idea that he's going to be controlled by the left to these kind of, he's past his prime, he doesn't have it. And so my, what, where I think this plays is that it, it creates more uh, data points within the narrative. You know, I, you're, I, I listen to, I listen to, I just, finished up a couple of focus groups. And, you know, it's not like they're saying they don't have the solution on Afghanistan and they don't necessarily have a deep understanding of what's going on there, but they know that he's bungling it. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, that people always said about Trump was that he was embarrassing us in front of the rest of the world. That was just something I heard all the time from people who voted for Trump, um, but that, that they had a tough time stomaching. And I think that idea that we are once again sort of embarrassed, diminished, uh, you know, when you have other countries saying about us that, uh, you know, we are derelict in our moral yeah. uh, obligations. And, and so I think, I think that's how it impacts him, where people, it plays into the macro narrative of him kind of not being up to it. And look, there's lots and lots of people are going to who are going to listen to the show are going to push back on that right. um, and are going to be angry at us for being so hard on him. But I, I will just add, because this is sort of a point of, um, I don't know, pride or importance to me, but like we're on team democracy here. Like we're not, we're not wearing a Jersey. We don't have an obligation to never be critical of Joe Biden because Republicans are terrible. And in fact, uh, what, what I think we want is to, like we see a catastrophe unfolding and and we want to we want him to do something about it 
um, and and to try to salvage uh, what's happening here, because otherwise it becomes uh, a narrative where he he loses confidence in, from a, a lot of people, especially I, those sort of center right folks. Um, and I think it, it it could end up in twenty two where people say, you know what, we've got to have this check on Biden, you know, where he's just mm-hmm. not up to it. Like that's really you know the the thing about the the people who voted for Joe Biden, kind of under duress, is that. They just really hated Donald Trump. They just and they just wanted to like go back to something that looked like normal <laughs> standard operating procedure. And if it feels like things are still out of control, that is the kind of thing that will just destroy Democrats in 22. No, I think that's absolutely right. And look, we, we, we didn't promise anybody that we were going to be a safe space. We made it very clear that we were not tribal. Um, and meaning, you know, being non-tribal means that um, we're not necessarily going to leap from one tribe to another tribe, one alternative reality to another alternative reality. But let's talk about um, the, the, the extraordinary uh, image of, of the Republicans who had gone along with Donald Trump's surrender to the Taliban. And that's really what it was back in 2019. It was a complete abject surrender uh, to the Taliban. Uh, now, uh, that that he would have done a better job than Joe Biden. You had Mike Pence writing a piece in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Biden had broken our deal with the Taliban. Um, and because there's no shame whatsoever, Nikki Haley uh, tweeted out, to have our generals say they are depending on diplomacy with the Taliban is an unbelievable scenario. And negotiating with the Taliban is like dealing with the devil. To which I tweeted, well, now do the Trump-Pence deal with the Taliban. So here's Nikki Haley, who was our ambassador to the United Nations, and I think they began the negotiations while she was still there, and yet somehow that's completely memory hold, right? The incredible, uh, and, and the number of times Donald Trump said, we need to get out, we need to get out, we need to get out, we have no obligation whatsoever, and that's been completely retconned now, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I do think the Nikki Haley tweet is actually more about taking a shot at Pompeo, uh, <laughs> who she thinks because they live in a world where like somehow she's going to be a legitimate contender in this Republican Party, and so really? is Mike Pompeo. Even though I got a, I got bad news for both of them. Uh, I ask in the focus groups all the time uh, how people, you know, people feel about. Nikki Haley, and she doesn't uh, get a lot of purchase. Neither does Mike Pence. They are much more interested in, you know, Candace Owens or Ron DeSantis. Um, but no, the, the- Candace Owens, just yeah, she- shoot, shoot me now. Just, just do it now. <laughs> Sweet meteor of death. What have you been waiting for? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, the only, the only like kind of bright spot is occasionally people will say someone like Tim Scott and you think it's probably not, it's probably not going to happen, but thank no. you for suggesting somebody remotely reasonable. Uh, but, but no, the, the, the total, uh, retconning and gaslighting that's going on about Trump's foreign policy. I mean, look, Trump abandoned the Kurds, the way that the the handling of Syria, I mean, there's all kinds of foreign policy malpractice that you can point to and that we certainly did uh, during the Trump administration. And that's part of why it's so strange to see what is just an essentially a continuation, not just of the actual policy, but also of the posture and the the the, the disposition toward, you know, I was watching one of these clips, you know, there's a lot of good clips going around uh, as as evidence of Trump's, you know, we're getting out in May. And one of the things that in one of the clips, Trump says, uh, it's all going to collapse when we leave. Yeah. Like he like he just knew, you know, he knew uh, that 
get and and it was with that sort of callousness of who cares not our problem we are just getting out of here um and i do think that there's probably there's probably a lot of truth to the fact that a, a lot of americans say this is sad uh but we had to go and there's nothing we can do about about the rest of this but i, I this is this is where i think for people who either follow Afghanistan closely or, you know, know a lot of people who are over there or who fought over there. They just know that that's not the case, that they're, that, that getting people out, that processing visas, doing, you know, getting our interpreters, our allies, their families, that that was something that could have been done, absolutely should have been done, uh, which of course takes us back to the place of where Republicans are right now, which is where they've decided that their dominant talking point, because they they also were isolationist, right? They wanted sure. out of Afghanistan, the big Trumpers. And so they actually can't criticize, not that the shamelessness would really, you know, they're not, they, oh, they'll still do it. They'll still hit Biden for it. But that's not their, their main problem isn't that he pulled out of Afghanistan uh, or even that he left people behind. Their issue is don't send us your refugees. We don't want anybody. Okay, so, we don't so want this, anybody here. As, as you know, th this is, I think, going to be the next big issue because this is, of course, the playbook that, you know, and it goes back to the Mexican rapists, why we need a wall, right? The invaders uh, who are, were coming to us, uh, blaming COVID on the d d disease infested um, migrants coming across the border. So now now the, uh, the the refugee issue has become a big deal. And leading the charge on this is former Trump aide Stephen Miller. I'm, I'm fascinated how this is going to play out because it seems to be dividing Republicans. It seems to be dividing Christians. Uh, and you have figures from the Trump administration now arguing that we really have no moral obligation at all to many of these allies that that, that fought with us. In fact, let me play a little soundbite. Um, Stephen Miller, uh, the, you know, the, the anti-immigration homunculus from the Trump administration, went on Fox News and said, you know, the Afghan refugees don't deserve to come here. And um, Matt Zeller, uh, who is leading, who is a, you know, a former, a, a, sorry, he is a veteran, uh, who is leading the campaign to get these translators out and very passionate. Uh, he was on last night responding. And did you hear this? Matt Zeller's response to Stephen Miller. So they played him a clip of Stephen Miller saying, ah, screw those refugees. They don't deserve to come here. I think he was on Laura Ingram's show. And they asked, well, Matt Zeller, what do you think about this? Because you have been this passionate advocate for getting everyone out. This is what he had to say. I have, that man has been my personal nemesis now for almost eight years. I've been fighting him since he was Jeff Sessions Senate staffer. As far as I'm concerned, he personally is as complicit as the Taliban in these people's deaths. He should be held accountable for war crimes. He spent the entirety of the Trump administration purposely trying to prevent these people from coming here. I've had meetings with him and his ilk. I brought the interpreter to, who saved my life to some of those meetings. We, we met with a lady by the name of Andrea Loving. Hmm. She's the uh, deputy uh, counsel for the House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee for the, yeah, the GOP. Janice and I were sitting in a meeting with her. She is Stephen's counterpart at the time in, in Congress. And we were debating about whether or not Congress should allocate more visas for these people. She then articulated what his platform was. I pointed to Janice and I said, you know, this is a gentleman who saved my life. Maybe you've just never had a chance to meet an Afghan. And so I helped to put a face to these people's names. And they looked at me and they said, you're doing nothing but letting Islamic fundamentalist terrorists into our country and it's our job to stop you. Wrong. 
these are our people. There is no us and them. There's just an us. And you know what? Stephen Miller never wore a uniform a day in his life. He's a privileged little brat. <laughs> he ought to be held for war crimes. I can't stand that man. I think he made that that perfectly clear. So, Sarah, how does this refugee issue play out? Because clearly a lot of Republicans are thinking this is our playbook. This is a winner. We basically run against, you know, the caravans on the border. You know, Joe Biden's, you know, letting people come in on the border. He's bringing these these Muslim refugees into your community. How does that play, do you think? So this is where I think that Joe Biden has salvaging opportunity. Right. And I, I'm worried that actually one of the reasons we weren't uh, getting these people out sooner is because they knew that there would be kind of an immigration tinged fight uh, over refugees. But this is one of those things where I think you seize the moral high ground. You do what is objectively, in my view, the right thing. And and you test uh, because the Republican Party will be split on this. Uh, but you test them on the on the idea that you know well if this was done so wrong here's what we're going to do we're going to get everybody out we're going to go get the people who fought with the, fought side by side with us who who shed blood on this mission uh i mean these are people i, I, I there's so many like, touching threads going around but the one that i read Brianna Keller um on CNN has a husband uh who's a marine and he tells it's very short thread um but 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 she included a clip from an old washington post i think column that he wrote about um the guys that 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 stood beside him and how he the the, Af, the afghans who um were with him there and, and he tells the story about how he he woke up one night and saw a shadow uh in his in his bunk and it turns out it was a couple of the Afghan guys he hung out with that guarded him while he slept. Mm. And, and you know, you just think like those people, they put their lives on the line to – because we walked in there and said we're going to stand with you. And yes, we were there for 20 years. And yes, uh, people have uh, – there were responsibilities that people have to their own country. And like all of those things are true and it's incredibly complicated. And I'm not a general and I'm not going to sit here and arm, armchair general it. But I will say that there are certain things that seem to be clear-cut moral obligations, and we should go get those people out Everywhere. and get them out and 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 bring them here. Refugees are some of the best. You know, there's this heartbreaking line in one of the pieces that we published on the Bulwark where they said, you know, we'll make great Americans. And my view, I'm my view on immigration in general is that look, Americans can be born all over the world. Uh, because if you've got freedom in your heart and you love this idea of what we're doing mm -hmm. here, like you could come here and be an American because it's not like Reagan has that line, uh, you know, you could go to France and, and never be a Frenchman or, or go to Japan and never be Japanese, but anybody can come to America and be an American. And especially the people who fought with us in this godforsaken war, like they should be allowed to come here. And so I just, I just think that what I want to see out of Joe Biden and I think what would help a lot is if he just went on offense on this, um, because it's it's the right thing to do. Because it is the right thing to do, and 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 it is the decent thing to do. It, it it's also the honorable thing to do. It uh, and I think that you'll have uh, broad support in the military community for doing all of this. 
and it also just reminds us of of the stakes of human decency. So I'm, you know, I was listening to you and um, and and Tim Miller talking about this the other day on on uh, the Next Level podcast, and and Tim made I thought a very powerful point. He said, you know, we you know we're constantly told don't, don't you know draw try to make any moral equivalency between you know something that happened here and something that happened there. But really, when you think about it, you think about the family separations at the border that we were all horrified about that became a test of American character and. and decency, what we're seeing now in Kabul is pretty much the moral equivalent of, of all of that. And so the people who are horrified by that, you know, we need to be, you know, be a, have a much more humane policy for these, these children and these women who are trying to, you know, find a, a better life, you know, in, on the southern border should feel the same way about these women and these children who are trying to get out of Kabul and perhaps come here. And I do think that this would be a very, very powerful argument to, to make. You know, I'm, I'm seeing one Republican politician after another, you know, try to imply that there's something scary or dangerous about bringing these people. In fact, was, what was it? This guy, Steve Cortez, is he from Newsmax? I can't keep track of, of the, of the, he had a picture of that, that famous picture of the, of the C-17 packed with more than 600 Afghans. And by the way, what an incredible story that must be. I'd love to see the movie about how the crew that flew that plane decided, let's go, let's take all these people. You know, we've never done anything like this before we did. We has a picture of it and going, you know, raise your hand if you want these people coming to your neighborhood. And it's interesting, even in the cesspool of of Twitter, the number of people who in fact are going, yeah, Bring them to my community. I would be glad to have them here. Yeah, I would be honored to uh, to have these people as uh, as as neighbors. So I agree with you. I think that this is a very very powerful issue, and it feels a like a very Biden esque or what we, what you and I thought was a very Biden esque type issue. I, yeah, I think that's right. And also, I just want to say though, I don't want to act like I don't see how complicated it is. Like the fact is, the Taliban is going to do horrible things to women and girls and in that country. And there are going to be a lot of people there that were, that you have to leave behind. Like you cannot get everybody out of Afghanistan. Right. Um, that being said, there seems to be a minimum that we can do. Uh, and, and that is for the people who, I mean, that, that point about Stephen Miller, who never fought a day in his life, like these Afghan refugees who were interpreters or who helped our military, they've done more for America. They've stood with American soldiers in a way that Stephen Miller never has. And that righteous indignation that 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 the guy was was like is totally justified at these people who want to denigrate the service and the integrity and the just general humanity of of these people in here. So from from a standpoint of like what we expect out of Joe Biden, it's like, hey man, you can't solve all the world's problems. We get that. You 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 do have to have and you do have to make really hard decisions as an American president. Absolutely. The question well, is is like can yeah. you do more? Like can you do can we do better than this? And the answer is absolutely yes. We can well, do better than what we've done. Also at least look like you really care about it. So you you could articulate and say, look, um, we cannot save everyone. We cannot bring everyone out, but we will bring out as many as we possibly can. And then we will do the right thing by them. I mean, that that seems to be the kind of message. And we're not getting that vibe. And I think that's that is disturbing. Okay, so 
we, we have spent most of the, the podcast on on Afghanistan, even though I said we wouldn't do it. Um, any thoughts on this uh, very sudden, somewhat unexpected uh, decision by the administration to recommend third shots for everyone? So uh, as Amanda Carpenter tweeted out, wait, so I get a third shot before my kids get their first shot. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm going to be first in line to get my 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 third shot. Um, I will have no hesitancy whatsoever. But um, I, I, I am I am wondering whether or not we're kind of flailing uh, that we're we're back to the mask wars before we have settled on the vaccine wars. You know, for example, we have all these school districts that are imposing mask mandates without imposing necessarily vaccine mandates on the staff. Or, frankly, on on the kids who are eligible for it. And I'm not sure that I fully understand that. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, this is what I mean about the macro picture that I think people um, get from, you know, where there's this. So all of the focus groups I've done, there was this period of time um, shortly after, you know, in the, the, in the weeks and months um, after Joe Biden took office, where there was kind of this cautious optimism from voters. You know, shots were starting to get in arms. We're rolling things out. Joe Biden's telling us by July 4th, we're going to, you know, and I, I was, all my predictions, you, this. you know yeah. me, I'm a resident optimist. Yeah. And I'm long on America and our ability to do big things. And like, we were starting to feel good. And so to be thrust back into this place where, and and so for those of us, I mean, Amanda's, I, I felt Amanda's tweet quite deeply because mm-hmm. for those of us who have young kids who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated, Delta has presented a completely different scenario than we thought we were in. Because not only can you, if you're vaccinated, catch Delta, but it looks like you can transmit Delta. And so if you've got unvaccinated kids, then you're basically back to a place where like, yes, you are not risking hospitalization and death, but it like totally changes the calculation. And so until we can get our kids vaccinated, like we're back in a place of, you know, just extreme care. And and I had this magical three yeah. weeks where I was like on an adult rumspringa, you know, where I just like hugged yeah. everybody and yeah. I went to casinos and baseball games and breathed on people and it was great. <laughs> and it's just like back, we're back into lockdown psychologically. For voters, uh, when you have Delta and you have a ton of uncertainty going into the school year and everybody's fighting about masks again and they're still fighting over vaccinations and you've got Afghanistan, it just throws this pall over the country and I think over the political environment where you think, man, I wanted something different out of this. No, the expectations were so high, you know, for hot Joe summer. And uh, you're right, it has it, it feels like we've, you know, had the rug pulled out from under us. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that's the question, that, you know, about and I had hesitated to bring it always back to politics because it is about human life. The the way that Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott, um, Governor Abbott, who has tested positive for COVID, continue to just adamantly insist that they are going to block private entities and local governments from taking the steps that they think are in, in you know, in, in the interest of, of public health. This strikes me as, again, politicians who are locked into a narrative and not able to make a pivot. Um I, I'm struck by some of the polling that we're seeing, the vast majority of people who are in favor of these restrictions, who understand the, the necessity, who are concerned about it. Uh, so DeSantis thought he was going to ride this uh, into 2024. How is it working out for him, do you think? You know, the thing is, like what Abbott and DeSantis are doing is a is a base play. 
And it's not the wrong base mm-hmm. play. Like they know that their first stop is a Republican primary. And and you know, Ron DeSantis is trying to is trying to close off the Christy Nome flank, right? Christy Nome was was taking shots at him at CPAC, uh, not by name, but saying, you know, I never shut anything down. Uh, and not like some other Republican governors who shut some things down. Uh, and I think that the like I will I, I I want to just go, I'm sorry to go back to the focus groups again, but I will tell you what I hear all the time from these Trump voters. I just finished a long slate of just pure Trump voters. Uh, Here are the things that are true to them. The election was stolen. Uh, You know, they went to sleep and then the results changed overnight. And uh, that is the result of some deep conspiracy uh, and no amount of audits coming back and showing that the election was secure and that there was not widespread fraud is going to convince them otherwise. They believe that what happened on January 6th was not a big deal. It was either an Antifa false flag or it was uh, something that the news media made a way bigger deal out of. And uh, and so there's an there's just an earth too where these people live, and it's a place where we have, like right now, Ron DeSantis is out there hawking this Regeneron, so, you know. Yeah, and, I'm like, Jesus. So I and I don't know that much about this, but I do know that like hundreds of millions of people now have taken this vaccine, and like we know that it is safe and effective. Uh, and instead, rather than just leaning into that, rather than Ron DeSantis just being responsible. He is thinking about his political future. And to me, this is absolutely disqualifying. I would like to say that, you know, oh, this is going to hurt him with suburban voters because the polling shows that the vast majority. But the thing is, is it's that 30 percent, the 30 percent of Americans who definitely think the election was stolen, who do not think there's anything wrong with the attack on the Capitol, who absolutely want to see Donald Trump be president again in 2024. And if not him, Ron DeSantis is the best junior substitute that they've got. Ron DeSantis knows who his base is and he is playing to it. Lives be damned. That is the Venn diagram from hell, isn't it? I mean, just the overlap <laughs> of, of, of all of these. Okay, so, so sometimes we use the the, the, the sound bites as uh, as palate cleansers. We'll, we'll we'll close out today's podcast with with a look at American democracy, and you can talk among yourselves about all of this. This is a gentleman that showed up at a hearing on a mask mandate, and as you listen to this, uh, think about um, what what it portends for the future of democracy. To open a pit of hell. You do not get a vaccine passport put on us. You know, as the population who's in control, you know that the people are the politicians. Once you get a power, you will never relinquish it. Do you think that the four feet of marble that holds you above high in this chamber will help you from the fate of humanity which you are unleashing? No, it won't. Your children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, how many vaccines have you had? Have you been a good little Nazi? Okay, so on that note, Sarah Longwell, um, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that says we are screwed, but um, 
we're in for a long, dark winter, I'm afraid. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. But guys, keep your heads up. It's going to, we'll, we'll figure it out. I promise. This is why Sarah is our resident optimist. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. 